Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Ask OTC, the show where we answer all your questions from the week in European football. I'm Dotson Adebayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm David Cartledge. This question straight in from Rich. Always good to get a question which references earlier conversations that we've had on OTC and Ask OTC. This is from Rich. After hearing about how well run Real Sociedad are last week, who are the best run clubs on the continent? David, should we start with you? Real Sociedad is the standard. Yeah, Real Sociedad would have been my pick here. But um, yeah, I think looking elsewhere, and funnily enough, we discussed them on a main episode of On the Continent. Um, I think Sassuolo were up there. And mm. also, I'm I'm going to go for Atalanta. Because I think, look, the idea of the premise of a, a well-run club, I think you have to have a good league, good league finishes. They narrowly missed out on the Champions League last year. Um, and if you look at their sales and their incomings as well, there's a great balance there. They bring in incredibly huge fees for talent that they develop in-house. They identify talent from all around Europe, bring it in, develop it, they sell it on um, <laughs> at quite a high price. And we just need to look at two deals that they sold when they sold players to Manning United in Amad Diallo um, and Rasmus Hoyland uh, in the past summer. Now, I think that is what a good club is in terms of how they, they never overexert themselves in the transfer market. They never do. You never see them doing a stupid deal. Um, and they're always performing at a high level in the league as well. So if, that's that's where a well-run club is to me. Yeah, Andy, how would you define a well-run club? And it's a good job that we're talking about clubs on the continent so you don't have to mention AFC Wimbledon. <laughs> well, I think... Uh, well, yeah, they're not on the continent, are they? There's no way around that. I, I, I think when you look for a well-run club, you look at consistent strategy. And that's something that I think we've gradually had to get used to in English football. The idea that a head coach is a head coach and you don't really have this sort of old-style manager anymore. We've moved a, a, a little bit away from that nomenclature because before, the manager did everything. The idea of a sporting director was treated with suspicion and disdain. But the fact is, if you pin everything from style of play, philosophy, recruitment onto one guy, that's too much. It's impossible, especially given the layers and the complexities of transfer nowadays. And of course, the cost of everything. So if you have a manager, in inverted commas, who is the guy who also coaches and picks the team and sits on the sideline, who... Um, it decides what players he's going to get. Obviously, he wants the players who are going to help him in the short term. That's not thinking about the big picture for the team over the next two, three, four, five years. So it means you're not necessarily going after the right sort of players. 
you cannot have the manager defining the philosophy of the club. Are you, you talking about are you, you talking about Eric Ting Hard and Man United here? <laughs> Well, well, <laughs> no, I, really, I'm listening here, yeah, and that's it, all I'm hearing. But it's, it's, on it's the continent, <laughs> he was once, <laughs> of course. But of course, that you you you've made a great point because both of you, because Ten Hag at United and Ten Hag at Ajax are two totally different things. Because he is filling a power vacuum at Manchester United because there aren't the people around him to help him. Now, I think it's quite interesting if you look at how he began to look a little bit lost at Ajax when Mark Overmars was obviously completely necessarily fired from his post. He'd been such a good sporting director for him that Ten Hag, it, it, it sort of knocked him off centre a little bit because everything ran so smoothly between uh, Overmars as a sporting director, between uh, with Van der Sar as the chief executive. Everything worked perfectly. All he had to do was coach and pick the team. Now, of course, he had input into what sort of players he would have liked, but everything ran so smoothly that he had his little lane. And now he's being relied on for a, a whole load of other things. It's a little bit like how Pep Guardiola enjoys a lot more working at Manchester City as he than he did working at Barcelona in the last couple of years, which took years off him, really, because he was expected to pick the team, coach the team, set the philosophy be the representative face of what the club meant to Catalonia, all this sort of stuff, and it completely wore him out. Now, if we're looking at really well-run clubs, they're the ones where the coach, however good he is, is just another employee. And all the employees are just another employee, no matter how good they are. I think the one is RB Leipzig. Now, whatever you think about um, the morality of how they've been able to fast track. Yes. And how a lot of German football fans would say that they've been allowed to sort of sidestep a lot of the rules that generally govern German football. I think the fact that everything works there. So when Nagelsmann goes, no problem. When things go wrong on the pitch and they have to fire Domenico Tedesco. Okay. Marco Rosa will get someone in who fits our philosophy, not a coach who happens to be available, but a coach who fits our philosophy and understands how things work. When they have to get rid of a sporting director at short notice, uh, when they have that fallout with Max Ebel, that's fine. When they have a surprising exodus this summer, because of course they're very good at recruiting, coaching young players and developing them and all the, all this sort of stuff. But this summer they never expected to lose like their four best players out of their team. But you know they got an offer that was so huge for. Yoshka Gvardiol, they couldn't do anything about it. They didn't imagine anyone touching Sobojlai's claws, but Liverpool did, so they didn't have an option to keep him. And they rode that out. And I saw them on the first day of the season, well, before the first day of the season, in the German Super Cup against Bayern. And they were just phenomenal. Bayern looked like a team of strangers. And they, with their four best players from last season gone, looked completely well-oiled. And what they are on the pitch reflects what they are off the pitch. Still got some major clubs, I think, spending beyond their means, shall we say. Um, but there are some really, really great examples and it's nice to see as well because I think the Premier League have been late to cotton onto this and it's been down to two clubs that were promoted within the last decade in Brentford and Brighton to, you know, to show how to do it. And it's quite similar to lots of models that have been on the continent for years. Uh, this question from Michael is Andre Villas-Boas going to be the next president of Porto? 
Andy. He's have to go, going to go through the seven circles of hell to get there if he wants to. Um, seven. It's, um, it's, 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 it's difficult. It's, it's really difficult because um, this has been an ambition of Andre Village-Borges for a long time now. Now, he stepped back from frontline coaching a, a, a while ago. Now, he always had this plan, didn't he, that he was going to um, pack in coaching fairly early. He talked about going off to do the um, Paris to Dakar rally, which he did a bit of until his car broke down uh, and all that sort of stuff. He didn't quite hit all the leagues that he was going to hit, but he definitely always had it in mind that he wasn't going to be a coach until he was like 60 or, or, or whatever. Now, he always maintained, even though it was a relatively acrimonious departure from Porto for Chelsea, he, re- he mended those fences pretty quickly because he always felt, this is my city, my club, I'm going to end up back there at some point. Now, a lot of people assumed it would be as the head coach. Now, it's been clear for a few years now that his ambition has been to be president. But what have you got to move to get there? The immovable object. The king. According to Porto's ultra capo, yeah. he's saying the kings to get to get through to be the king, you have to get through us. That's what they have said about that's, this. That's exactly it. Now he said we didn't have anything to do with the attack on your house this week, which is awful. Like his, his house was graffitied. Um, um, someone someone who works with him was 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 attacked and and their car stolen. It's just awful, really. And you know there has been a campaign of intimidation by pro. Jorge Nuno Pinto de Costa, and Pinto de Costa has been president of Porto since the, the mid 80s, like 40 years, basically. Quite remarkable, isn't it? That that length of Incredible. range. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, especially since Jean Michel Olas has, has left Lyon this yeah. year, who was there for 37, I think. So it's like. And he left somewhat reluctantly as well. Didn't he he, he yeah. definitely did, yeah. yeah. Um, but Pinto de Costa is in a different model because no one's going to. He's a member of own club no one's going to buy the club and boot him out basically so um it, it's, it's difficult because you saw that with with the reception that the leon fans gave olas and the, the way that similar sections of their ultras groups actually continue to deify him despite the fact he did a bloody awful job for he the did. last couple of years and i think a lot of the, there is there is an increasing amount of porto fans who look at pinto de costa and think like, like financially, we're in a mess and we have been for a long time. They've had a lot of trouble with FFP. We still pump them up as a team that's great, a club that's great at developing and selling players. Well, they're not anymore. And they've lost a lot of good players on freeze. Now, they've made a massive profit this year because um, Otavio's gone to Saudi, but Mediterranean's probably going to leave for nothing next year. You know, they could have sold him this summer and, and, and they didn't because they decided the price wasn't high enough. And, you know, there, there are increasing amounts of Porto fans have said, look, we're really grateful for what Pinto de Costa has done, but things have changed and the club is not running right. And it's not running as efficiently as, say, Benfica, who had a major presidential change going back a couple of years when um, Rui Costa came in. So I think I can understand why people would back Villas Boas, but because of that climate of like people who are just Pinto de Costa ultras, and as David was saying, the Super Dragoish being very strongly Pinto de Costa, to actually think it's a good idea for there to be change and get and 
from moving to that to actually getting change done is, is, is really difficult. When somebody's been in that length of time, it is very hard to, to think of something uh, different, you know? Mm, and, yeah. Uh, but yeah. having said that, that, that attack on V.S. Boas earlier this week that Andy mentioned, I would have thought would have dampened somewhat his enthusiasm. It hasn't. Be. No, that's the amazing. No, that's he's the very, amazing come on, it's Village Boas. He's very strong willed, sort stubborn. of. Yeah, stubborn guy. Yeah, it'd take a lot more to. And he's got support in some areas as well. I know it's the legendary George Costa um, has come out and supported him as well. So that's a big figure in, in terms of export or players, I think, to, to have behind you. Yeah, and just to keep the consistency, that's got to be George Costa. You know, just trying to. My bad, my you're, bad. You're well Obrigado. Bad. Obrigado to you and all. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is from George. Why haven't Sevilla capitalised on their Europa League wins? Shouldn't they be a much bigger club than they were in the early 2010s? We kind of have touched on the kind of demise of Sevilla from what they were previously on OTC. But good question. They can't be. This is what they are. Um, They're a club that are incapable, I think, of getting any bigger. I think the only way is kind of down. I think they've hit a ceiling as a club. I think they did a long time ago as well. I think, you know, when people saw the Europa League victories, they're like, oh, maybe next year and the Champions League will kick on. Their model doesn't really allow them to. Um, a big part of their model has always been selling players that, uh, you know, you know, they get players in on the cheap, they develop them uh, after two or three years, and then they go to a bigger club for a high fee. you Jules Koundes for a, for, for a great example here. Now, the last few years, they have not done that um, to the same level, to the same extent. They haven't sold as well as they used to. Is that the problem, David, that we know what they are, but they don't seem ready to accept what they are? Because uh, like in terms of the signings, they've made the signings that would seem to suggest, right, we want to become more of a heavyweight, mm-hmm. but it's just not possible. They've not accepted what they really are as a club. No, I don't think so. Um and they're suffering for it now. I think, you know, they're, they're on a real downturn. And I think right now in the shape that they are, they'd absolutely love to be that old Sevilla model. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think sometimes as a club, you've got to accept that is what we are. We're going to be the club that gets talent in. Inevitably, they're going to leave to your bosses, to your Premier League clubs and what have you. And then we'll replace them really sensibly. We'll move on and we'll try and do repeat what we did. It's very hard when you're trying to do that every single year as well because you kind of like look up and go, oh, right, we can't reach there. The only way is down, but we're just going to try and keep doing the same thing. That is a very hard, difficult thing to adjust to. You're almost going sideways. But sometimes you have to accept that because the alternative's going down. And that's the situation that they're in right now because they haven't bought very well. Monchi isn't there anymore. So they're, uh, you know, they're acclimatizing to a new era with Victor Orta at the helm. Monchi's old scout, of course. He's now in charge. You get it. Interesting time at Leeds, shall we say, a very you know charismatic individual. He's 
still trying to figure out, I think, what model Sevilla are going to be going forward. Um, so there's a lot of pressure on there, I think, at Sevilla. But I think we can forget that the you know the old Sevilla, I'll be really surprised to see them challenging in Europe at any level uh, for the next few years. There's a soundtrack to that, of course. So the fans should be singing, we are what we are, we don't want tears, but you don't want me to sing it for you. This from Charlie. <laughs> oh, oh. Uh, this is from Charlie. How has Victor Gokarez started life at Sporting? And why didn't he attract more interest from the Premier League in the summer? Is he looking like the next player to get a big money move out of Portugal already? A lot of questions in there, Charlie, and all good ones. Um, Gokarez has started brilliantly. Um, he's uh, scored at almost a goal a game so far. He's led the line really well, so he's exactly the sort of player they wanted to need, that they needed. Um, they hoped Paulinho would be that player, but he's just not really of that level as well as not being consistent. Now, the thing that Gyukarez has actually done by coming in and, and being so good and raising the level, you know, you think the best players are the players who are not just good themselves, but raise the levels of everyone above mm -hmm. them. Paulinho is way more effective since they can use him as a pinch hitter behind Gyukarez. And his goals per minute this season has, has, has been the best it's been since he was the previous most expensive signing of Sporting when they brought him over from Braga. Now, Gyukarez is the, the, the club record signing. They paid 20 million euros up front and possible foreign add-ons for him um, this summer when they brought him from Coventry. As for why he didn't attract more interest from the Premier League in the summer, look, I mean, I don't watch the Championship nearly enough to know. What I would suggest is that there are very few top-level strikers who go from the championship to a big Premier League team now. Yeah. I've, I think this is the intermediate step that makes him sellable to a top half club in the Premier League. I think there was a real reluctance um, from Premier League clubs to, to pay that sort of money for a strike in the championship. You know, there's a big fear of a player that is, you know, just re who, who is excellent in the championship, but not good enough for the Premier League. And just that little level just in between them. I think there was a concern over that. And I also think, look... Premier League clubs would sp rather spend twenty million on unknown from Liga or the Bundesliga or La Liga than buy a striker from from the Championship. And um, it's still a top division, isn't it? If, you, if, still, if, if you're a, getting a player from there, yeah. I think it's very. I think it's a very good division, and I think Bjorkares um, showed enough there to warrant a move to the Premier League. And there are a lot of Championship to Premier League success stories as well. We'll have to. We've seen it time after time. You got to remember when. Ollie Watkins went from Brentford to Aston Villa as well. You know, that's a guy who started out as a winger. They moved him centre-forward after Neil Malpeer left. Um, he stood up, was excellently there. Ivan Tony, another Brentford example as well, has, you know, acclimatised the Premier League really well. There's already talk of, you know, him getting a bigger move. So there is evidence there that they can succeed. And yeah, I, I thought he was fantastic. Just a big Hulk and presence. He the time I watched him against Sunderland and he absolutely battered I know Sunderland had big defenders but Gokaris battered them because they couldn't deal his movement well I know that we always talk about you know Jude Bellingham for obvious reasons but nevertheless uh, the way that he went from Birmingham to Germany was a way of I suppose bypassing any reluctance to Sign somebody straight from the championship. Yeah, there's, lo there's lots of examples. Um, Eze and Alisa both went to Palace as well. They, you know that they had they had success with one and said, right, we're going to do this again. We'll get because we know the championship, the Premier League, it, it can work. Um, and they've both been fantastic in the Premier League. Sorry, yeah, I, I was going to say about Gukeris. I think what you're seeing already, and you were talking about, you know, there are different ways of defining well-run clubs before. In terms of developing players, Sporting are up there. 
Now, we think of them as a prolific producer of players, you know, a producer of players from their academy. But actually, they've, they've been very good at developing players over the last couple of years. Now, you've seen with Gukuras already, you talked about that movement. The goal he scored in the, in the derby against Benfica was phenomenal. The combination between him and Marcus Edwards. And you have to be a pretty high level of football intelligence to click with Edwards, I, I, I would suggest. But also, if you look at Marcus Edwards himself, they took him from Guimaraes, where you know, he, he was good there, but you were getting maybe one great game from him every four or five weeks. You were seeing flashes of what he's capable of. They gradually worked him into the team. They didn't stick him in the 11 straight away. And now, if he's not the best player in the league, Edwards, he's not far off. He's, he's, he's one of the very best in the league. And I feel that a, a Premier League team will come and buy him at, at, at some point. You look at Pedro Gonçalves, uh, Pot, who came across from Familicao, and sort of the guard as well. Yes, the guard came from Familicao. Yeah. yeah, that's 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 right. And you know that they developed him and sold him on for an absolute fortune yeah. to PSG. Um, Pedro Gonçalves will, will go for a lot of money. I think at the beginning, people didn't really know what kind of player he was because he was like this de facto replacement for uh, Bruno Fernandes. He's less of a driver of the team, but he's actually a little bit more technical. So I think he is a player who. Money probably dictates that he will end up in the Premier League. In an ideal world, I think he would be a great fit for a La Liga team. Final one from Francesco. Why can't it Italy produce a striker? All the promising ones seem to disappear into obscurity or just fail to hit high standards of the past. Destro, Pellegri, Keane, Scamacca, Immobili, to name a few. And just on that note, Immobili is the only Italian to end up as Serie A top scorer since... Luca Toni in 2015, and we remember him, don't we? Yeah, look, I think there's two factors here. I think, and this goes across football, across Europe as well. I don't think many people want to be a striker these days. I don't think many people want to be a number nine these days. I think I think if you're a kid coming through, you want to be a winger or maybe an attacking midfielder, set midfielder, even a fullback. I just don't think many people want to be strikers. And I think in Italy as well, I think... Still, and you know, I think I still think there's a style of football that exists in Syria as well, where a certain striker will come through, and it's very hard for them. I think they can they can cope in Italy. We've seen Scamacca was you know very good in Italy in the more modern type as well. He's really he's a big striker, but he's also very technical as well. Immobile as well has done well, but it's very hard for them, I think, to come out of those countries to to come out of Italy and then do it elsewhere because of how Syria's style is still. Skamaka's very atypical as well, isn't he? I mean, he's definitely the striker that Italy need. We've seen mm-hmm. that when he's at his best. If he has a good season for Atalanta, that makes a massive difference to how well they can do in the Euros, despite being drawn in pot four, which is obviously a bit of an impediment. Um, but I think if you look at the, the sort of player he is, as David says, because Italy's key players, whether it's Chiesa, Berardi, they're the wide, they're the wide forwards. Really, what what you need is someone who's not just a goal scorer like Immobile, and he's been brilliant for Lazio. You know, he's one of the modern Serie A greats. There's no question about that. Lazio's top scorer of all time. But does he fit that system? Probably not, to be honest. They don't need that running in behind striker. They need that conduit who Chiesa, who is their best player, can mm-hmm. play off. That's that's what they need. Now, some of these other strikers that Francesco's listed, I, I don't think Destro was ever 
particularly top level. I think he was good, but but not. He was good when he was good at a certain level. level. Yeah, not, not elite. Young level. level, I think he was good. You know, he was somebody who bossed youth levels. But that yeah. obviously we don't always. That doesn't always translate to the top level. Yeah, and I think uh, Pellegrini and Keen are on the same page, really, aren't they? You yeah. know, very promising when they were when they were young. I think with Keen particularly. Made made some poor transfers, yeah. I think, which which didn't really help him. But out. again, not a striker, not a tradition, a striker in the traditional sense. Again, he's just somewhere half in between, and this is no. what my point about a player not wanting to be. I know we've, I know we've got the Scandinavian boys, Hoyland, Haaland. They're absolutely loving being these pure thoroughbred how, number nines. How can youngsters not want to be strikers? That was the fun of playing football. We had to fight people off. It's to, about not being you know, not a particular type of striker, mm. I think. And Pellegrini's quite a good example of that. Because you look at him, even from when he was a kid, he was he's really well built. You know, remember he made his he made his debut and when he nearly ruined um and, and he nearly ruined um Francesco Totti's farewell. In one of his first games, he 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 made that debut for for, for Cagliari, a, a Roma. Um and even when he was 15, 16, he's built like a wardrobe. But but when you are that size, I mean, A, it's sort of I think made coaches look at him and try to develop him into a player he wasn't because mm. he was always that he was was always a more technical sort of striker who's pretty good on the ball. And then of course you've got to manage that body of that size when you're still growing. Mm. And if you look at the injuries that he's mounted up, you know big clubs have looked at him. You think he went off to Monaco for a, a, a lot of money. Um, big clubs have looked at him and thought this is a guy that we can get something out of. There's real ability here, but unfortunately. I think because he's been miscast and because he's struggled to cope with the sort of body shape he is, it's been very hard to make that potential into actual, real, A-top player. Well, that's it for today. Uh, thank you for listening to Ask OTC. Uh, Andy will be back on Monday alongside Nicky Bandini for a special edition of OTC Reacts following Inter versus Juventus. And David will then be joining Andy and I again next Thursday. And if you'd like to ask a question, you can contact us at any time at Radio Dotson, at Andy Brassel, at David Jacker, and at OTC Pod. Or you can email us OTC at footballramble.com. On the Continent is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network.